Our second reading of Scripture tonight comes to us from six chapters later in John's Gospel. We'll be reading from chapter 19, verses 23 uh, to 27, um, despite what it says. Listen for God's word to you. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they divided his clothes among the four of them. They also took his robe, but it was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said, rather than tearing it apart, let's throw dice for it. This fulfilled the scripture that says, they divided my garments among themselves and threw dice for my clothing. So that is what they did. Standing near the cross were Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, he said to her, Dear woman, here is your son. And he said to his disciple, Here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Tonight is Maundy Thursday. Uh, When I was uh, young in the faith, I didn't understand what Monday Thursday was, but I learned eventually that Maundy is a corruption, that when the Latin phrase mandatum novum fell on English ears, they said, well, I don't understand that, and they came up with Maundy as as an abbreviation for mandatum novum. Mandatum novum is Latin for the new mandate, the new commandment that Jesus speaks of in John's, uh, the first reading we heard from John's Gospel tonight. But the reading plan we have been following this uh, Lent has moved us beyond that upper room discourse from chapter 13 all the way to the Passion. And so we heard tonight the words from the cross that Jesus spoke to the disciple he loved and to his mother. The reading in the program I discovered, um, I had I had um, uh, meant to include three more verses, but uh, it's just as well. Those three verses are where Jesus um, uh, says that he thirsts, and then a, a branch with a sponge with sour wine is held to his lips, and when he is able to speak again, he says it is finished, it is paid off, that what he has come to achieve has been achieved. And I can't overestimate the importance of those three verses that I missed, but honestly, my attention has been elsewhere. For the last couple of weeks, I've been thinking about the verses just before, the ones at the end of our bulletin. And I think that's what led me to to make the mistake in putting the bulletin together tonight. The passage where Jesus speaks from the cross. Imagine how difficult it would have been hanging from your arms just to lift yourself up enough to draw in breath and then to speak. And of course, he can't point to the people he's talking to because his arms are nailed to the cross. So he has to indicate somehow with his eyes or with his head, woman, your son. And then to indicate the disciple whom he loved and say to him, this is your mother. How hard must that have been for him to do? And so how important they must have been. In my own life, especially for the last couple of months due to family medical crises, 
but also as a pastor for any number of family situations I have been a part of near the end of life. I have observed how death brings with it a host of problems. Sometimes because of the nature of the illness or the infirmity, because of advanced age or because of advanced pain, death may be welcome. But it is not a friend. Death is never a friend. Paul tells us that death is an enemy. It is the last enemy, and it is still to be defeated. And until it is defeated, its sting is intact. Death brings new problems with it, but it also surfaces old problems. And it intensifies everything with grief and pain and loss, plus a sense of finality that this is the one chance you have. You can't fix things after this. And the result is frequently intense and sometimes just plain ugly. Years ago, I was officiating in a funeral in Palm Springs, and I was waiting before the service off to one side, as preachers do. It was a graveside service, and I was off to one side, and I was passing the time quietly with the funeral director as we waited for the family and the friends to assemble. And she pointed out to me some of the monuments. So this was the main Palm Springs uh, Cemetery. And she pointed out this big monument over there and said that was Bob Hope's. And this one over yonder was Frank Sinatra's and Gerald Ford's over there. And right there among them was my parishioner. Because fame and money do not exempt you from death. But neither do obscurity and modest means. We all die. And so while we waited, the family began to assemble under the awning. It's the desert, so they put up an awning so people can sit in the shade uh, while they're waiting for the service. And while we were standing there, a young woman got out of a car. You know, they have those little roads that go through cemeteries, and she was parked along the road. And she got out and put her baby in a little stroller, and she began to walk toward the group there under the awning. And I heard one of the men under the awning say to the others, I'll take care of it. And then he got up and walked across the lawn and intercepted the woman in her path. And he said to her very coldly, this is for the family. And I don't know, I don't know what the story was there. I didn't know who the family really was. I mean, I knew one member. It was the member that I was there to bury. But I didn't know the story, what that one cold remark meant. And I have wondered since then, I've wondered if I should have said, no, this is for her too, because it is. But the moment passed and I didn't have time to really process it or think about it. I'm not sure what I should have done. Um, but I did nothing, and so I'm glad that she didn't go away. She went some distance away out of the view of the family and stood under a tree and kind of observed the, the funeral, even if she couldn't hear it well. 
And later on, I asked the funeral director if she had ever seen anything like that. And she said, no, she had not. She said that they routinely, routinely got warnings from family. They said, we're afraid that somebody's going to come and make a big scene. So you need to be prepared for it. But she said she had never actually seen it. And I don't know what the story was there. I don't know what that woman's relationship was. I don't know. I don't know anything. And I don't know if that family has reconciled since then. I hope that they have. But maybe they will never reconcile. Because death is hard. So the first lesson tonight is to be like Jesus. To realize that death will come to us. And to do whatever we can to make our death easy for the people we leave behind. To get our affairs in order. To make our final arrangements. If you don't have a will, get one. Jesus knew he would die. Do you think you're special? If your will, like ours, is out of date, then bring it up to date. Get a power of attorney. Prepare an advanced directive. Put them all in a file, a bright red file. And then go to the hardware store and get tape like this and mark it up so everyone can see your file. Talk with people. Let them know what your wishes are. Another woman at that same church was bounced from one hospital to another for about six weeks by a family. The brother and sister I only met once or twice, but I could tell there was some kind of a guilt-driven power struggle going on between them, and it didn't make her final days any better. So make sure your family knows what your wishes are. Plan your funeral. I have so many meetings with non-church-going family. They know that church was important to dad. They know that church was important to grandma. But they really don't know why or how. So tell them. Tell them face-to-face, by all means. But tell them in writing. If there are important scriptures, scriptures that have spoken to you that that say something about your understanding of the grace that you have received from God, write those down. Make sure your family can find them. If there are hymns that speak to your heart, write those down. If you have specific requests, put them in writing. My mom wanted bagpipes. I have no idea why, but she got them. Let me give you one more bit of advice. Don't put a limit on the size of your funeral. People come to me and they say, oh, she wouldn't want a big service. Well, you know, really, who would? I mean, really, who wants to be the center of attention, lying in a box in a great big room filled with hundreds of people? What kind of ego does it take to want to do that? You know, it's the kind of ego that that wants to lie in state for a week and have a 21-gun salute with cannons and uh, airplane flyover with the missing man formation. I mean, uh, there are people who get that kind of funeral, but who wants one? 
But I'll tell you what I tell your loved ones. It's not for you. It's about you, but it's not for you. Because you see, by the time your funeral comes, you'll be in paradise with the Lord. And things will be just dandy where you are. The only way they can get better is at the end of the age and the renewal of all things in the resurrection. But it's the people you leave behind who need the funeral. Sometimes it's people who will miss you. They will have had a hole torn out of their lives. And they need to be reassured in their hope. And sometimes it's for complete strangers who don't know you at all. But they know your loved ones. And they want to come to show their respects as a way of letting your loved ones know that they're in their thoughts. So don't put an arbitrary limit on your funeral. Instead, do what you can to make your passing easy for the people you're leaving behind. Be like Jesus. Get your affairs in order. Don't avoid the issue. Don't think that you're exempt. And that is the message that I was planning to do for the last couple of weeks, really since my dad's illness, it made us start to think about this. But a question has been nagging at me as I prepared this message. There's one more question, which is this. Why did Jesus do this? I mean, we know why we should do it. But he's hanging on the cross. Every breath is agony. And he takes two of them to deliver these last words to the disciple he loves and to Mary. Why? See, Jesus knew it was temporary. Over and over again, the scriptures record how Jesus said the Son of Man had to die and be buried and raised on the third day. He knew he was coming back. There was no urgency. Mary was going to be fine for two days. She was a pilgrimage. She was on pilgrimage with everybody else in Jerusalem, there for the Passover. She had a backpack like everybody else. She had food. She would last three days. There was no urgency. Why did Jesus do this? Why couldn't it wait until after the resurrection as the time came for the ascension? Why did Jesus tell him now? Why did he tell her now? I have a preacher friend. She's in one of the two denominations, and um, she's young, and um, she's a first career minister, and still kind of getting started in her in her career as a preacher. And um, we were talking about things, and um, we got on the subject of her friends who are like her, very young. And she said that uh, not many of them were Christians. She she considered them mountain spiritualists. And I thought, mountain spiritualist? What is a mountain spiritualist? And then she started to explain it to me, and I understood it a little bit better. Um, a mountain spiritualist is someone who's gone up on a mountain and had a spiritual encounter. She's had an, a, a spiritual uh, experience of some kind. She had an encounter with the divine. She felt like she was in the presence of God up on the mountain. And they're different from atheists and from from materialists. They believe that there is more than meets the eye to this world. But they don't have any use for religion. They will sometimes say, I'm spiritual but not religious. 
Or if they're Christians, some of them call themselves Christians, and they say, I love Jesus, just not the church. And as a pastor, I find that odd because Jesus loves the church. Jesus said that the only thing on earth that can compare to the way he looks at the church is when a husband looks at his wife on their wedding day and is elbowing people and said, can you believe she's marrying me? Have you ever seen anything so gorgeous in your life? Jesus looks at the church that way. And he tells us that it is our love for one another that is the hallmark of this community. He says, in the reading we heard earlier, love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. By this they will know you are my disciples, that you love one another. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. This is what it means to be a Christian, ultimately. Jesus tells us it's not those mountaintop experiences. It's not the time when the hair stands up on end and you realize you are in the presence of God and want to take your shoes off. It's not how much of the Bible you've read or how much you've memorized. It's not how frequently you attend worship. It's not your theology. It's not even how well you make disciples or take care of the poor. Jesus tells us in John 13, By this they will know you are my disciples, that you love one another. And there on the cross, each breath in agony, Jesus gets the ball rolling. His disciples still in hiding. He looks at the two in front of him. He says, woman, your son. This is your mother. Love each other as I have loved you. And for 2,000 years, this is what the church has done, at least at its best. I often go to the hospital to visit people who are ill, And I often find church people there ahead of me. Just the other day, literally just days ago, I was visiting one of our members who had had surgery on her hip. And I got to the church, and Bill and Joy were there talking with her. And I say that not to single them out or say that they're exceptional, but because I see this so often. People doing exactly what Jesus told us to do. What he said characterizes his disciples. See, people can argue theology. People can pick the Bible to pieces. People can even argue about spiritual experiences. Maybe you were just suffering from oxygen deprivation up there. But they cannot argue with a community that is demonstrating love for one another. Because death still has its sting, at least for now. People still get cancer. People still are diagnosed with depression. People have addictions. Marriages fail. People get old. 
children die. And Jesus doesn't want anyone to go through that alone. In the hospital, by the roadside, in the courtroom, Jesus calls the church to be there for one another. I think sometimes the reason mountain spiritualists like Jesus but not the church is because they're isolated and there aren't enough people that they love. Or they haven't thought it through and realized someday they'll get sick. They may die. They may fall to their doom up there on the mountain. But if they don't, their parents will get old. Or their children will get sick. And Jesus says, more than spiritual experiences, I want you to have community. Especially people in pain. People who suffer loss and grief. So get your affairs in order. Jesus did. But until then, let your life be defined by love. And let us be a community that shows Christ's love to one another. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that there are people who loved us from where we were to the place we are now. However poorly or well we are disciples of Jesus, we did not arrive in this place because of the theology or because of mystical encounters, but because there are people who invested in us and loved us into your kingdom. Lord, help us to be a part of that loving community and help us to show it to people whose only experience is the mountaintop. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.